Mara, Daughter of the Nile by Eloise Jarvis McGraw. Part 1 Memphi. Chapter 1 The Mysterious Passenger. Nikonk, captain of the Nile boat Silver Beetle, paused for the fiftieth time beside his vessel's high peaked prow and shaded his eyes to peer anxiously across the wharfs. The city that rose behind them shimmered almost drained of color in the glare of Egyptian noon. Doorways were blue-black in white buildings. Alleys were plunged in shadow. The gay colors of the sails and hulls that crowded the harbor seemed faded and indistinct, and even the green of the Nile was overlaid by a blinding surface glitter. Only the sky was vivid, curving in a high blue arch over ancient Memphis. The wharf itself seethed with activity. Sweating porters hurried in and out among groups of merchants, haggling over stacks of cargo yet to be loaded. Sailors, both foreign and Egyptian, swarmed everywhere, talking in a babel of tongues. A donkey drover pushed through a cluster of pale-faced Libyans, shouting at his laden beast. Three Mitanni traders in the fringed garments of Babel laid wagers on a dogfight at one end of the wharf, while a ring of yelling urchins surrounded a cage of monkeys at the other. Over all rose the rank smell of the river, an odor compounded of fish, mud, water-soaked rope, pitch, and crocodiles. But nowhere in that tangle was the one tall figure for which the captain searched. Nikonk chewed his lip and drummed upon the gunwale with his big blunt fingers. An hour ago he had been uneasy. Now he was so tense that when his helmsman strolled across the deck and touched his elbow, he leaped as if he had been burned. By Seth and all the devils, he roared, swirling about savagely. Fool! Coming upon me from behind like that? What do you want? The helmsman took a hasty step back. The cargo, he mumbled. Everything is stowed, master. We're ready to sail. Well? The, uh, we await orders. Then await them. The helmsman laid his right hand on his left shoulder in the attitude of submission and escaped, casting puzzled glances backward as he did so. Nikonk sighed explosively and mopped the sweat off his upper lip with a hairy wrist. He was a burly man with a fierce jaw, contradicted by mild brown eyes, and just now he looked and felt a good deal older than his forty years. For a moment he leaned wearily against the gunwale, staring upriver, where the luxurious barge of some noble moved over the sparkling water like a gigantic water bug. Twelve oars on each side, dipping rhythmically. Then he straightened, shoved his square-cut black wig askew in order to scratch under it, and adjusted it again with an irritable slap. Automatically, his eyes checked the silver beetle, moving about her trim, scrubbed confines from the two great sweeps at the stern to the tall masts with their horizontally furled sails. Past the tiny cabin... To the bales of wool and hides stacked on the deck, the oarsmen lounging at their post. Yes, all was ready to sail, 
so far as cargo and crew were concerned. But the passenger, the puzzling, unpredictable passenger, whose very charm set alarm bells ringing loudly in Nikonk's mind. What of him? Nikonk swore under his breath, wishing fervently that cargo and crew were all he had to worry about, wishing he knew either more or less. It was dangerous to have brains these days in the land of Kemet. He took a restless turn about the deck, his joined hands flapping impatiently at his back, and reviewed once more his brief acquaintance with the missing passenger. It was an acquaintance only ten days old. He had seen the young man for the first time the morning he had set sail from Thebes on his trip to Menfi. Since the youth, Sheftu, he had said his name was, had paid his passage promptly, there seemed no reason to give him a second thought. He was pleasant and unobtrusive, tall, somewhere around twenty years old, with an attractively homely face and a common white shenty and headcloth like a thousand others. Except for a certain odd, lazy grace in the way he moved, the captain found nothing unusual about him. That was at first. Later, during the long, sun-drenched days of the beetle's journey down the river, Nikonk had good reason to study his passenger more attentively. Only then did he become aware of other details. For instance, the areas of slightly paler skin on Sheftu's upper arms, which indicated that he habitually wore bracelets, though his sole ornament now was a curious amulet on his left wrist. Also the absent, brooding expression which sat so often and so oddly on his young face, and the suave charm which covered this instantly if he knew he was being watched. The charm itself was a little odd, once you thought of it, since when did a scribe's apprentice, for so Sheftu had described himself, possess the smooth and subtle manners of a courtier? The captain grew sure and sure that his passenger was no ordinary nobody. Breeding was written in every line of his long, well-muscled body, and his voice had the careless authority of one accustomed to being obeyed. However, Nikonk might have noticed none of this had it not been for a conversation which suddenly focused his attention on the young man. It took place early one morning, about five days out of Thebes. The silver beetle was sailing past an ancient temple surrounded by scaffolding and piles of stone, which, around which workmen swarmed busily. Nikonk, standing alone at the door of his cabin, scowled across the river and shook his head. Aye, they're at it again, he muttered sourly to himself. What do you mean, Captain? Nikonk jumped. He had not heard his passenger come up beside him. Why, the rebuilding of the old temple yonder, he answered, pointing. If I've seen that sight once, I've seen it forty times in the past few years. Our good Queen Hatshepsut evidently thinks gold grows on papyrus stalks. Does she mean to restore every ancient building up and down the Nile? Nikonk grunted as scaffolding and workmen slipped upstream past the beetle's stern sweeps. It's not only the ruins. 
Amon himself knows what her new temple at Thebes is costing. Poor folk like me in sweat and taxes. The new temple is a beautiful one, though, remarked Chef Tu. They say every wall of the inner room is covered with handsomely carved relics. Relics depicting Her Majesty's sacred birth, no doubt? inquired the captain sardonically. Of course. What better subject could there be? Had Shepsut was fathered by the sun himself, nursed by goddesses, and named Pharaoh in the cradle. Aye, so she claims, so she claims, snorted Nikonk, incautiously. As for me, I would rather see a man on the throne of Egypt. That young Tuthmosis, her half-brother, when is he to grow up? For fifteen years now he's been acting as his she's been acting as his regent, spending gold and silver like water, sending ships, mine among them, to the edge of the world for her own amusement, letting the empire foul its rudder for want of trained soldiers. And still the king does not come of age. Why? It's obvious, friend. He's not allowed to, nor will he ever be. Hatshepsut is pharaoh, and Egypt must put up with it. Do you not admire the queen, Captain? <coughs> it was the very blandness of the voice that caused the alarm bells to clang suddenly in Nikonk's mind. He swung around and really looked at his passenger for the first time, noting the cleverness of the irregular dark face, the odd little smile hovering about the mouth, the dangerous alertness of the long black eyes. Nikonk went cold all over. What had he been saying? It was treason to speak against the queen. Near treason even to mention the young king's name above a whisper, much less actually complain. Full of a sudden, clear picture of himself impaled on the torturer's stake in the midst of some desert, he sagged back against the cabin door. May the queen live forever, he exclaimed. May, by, may my tongue be clipped if it utters a word against Hatshepsut, the daughter of the sun. Pray rest easy, Captain. Sheftu's voice was like a purr. You but stated an opinion, but you are somewhat indiscreet. There are those who might haul you off to the palace dungeons at once if they heard what I just heard. He gave Nikonk a moment to absorb that thought, then added casually, so you would overthrow the queen. By the feather of truth, I said no such thing, gasped Nikonk. He darted an agonized glance up and down the deck, then strode to a deserted spot on the prows. Sheftu followed, his face amused. A wise precaution, he commented, arranging himself comfortably against the gunwale. They say the queen's spies are everywhere. No doubt! Nikonk was convinced he was talking to one that minute. He wiped the sweat from his forehead and attempted to change the subject, but Sheftu overrode him. She has grounds for her constant suspicions. There's a group of reckless fools in Thebes, no doubt you've heard of them, who have organized in secret to topple Het Shepsut off her throne and set young Tuthmos there instead. I know nothing of them, nothing, 
Such movements have been started before and been squashed like beetles. They must be fools indeed who would try again. Perhaps, Sheftu shrugged expressively. He had lowered his voice, moving a little closer to Nikonk. But one must give them credit, Captain. They have courage. And they insist they are fighting for what all Egypt really wants. They say it's monstrous that a woman should wear the double crown and call herself not royal wife and consort, but king and pharaoh. They say the backs of the people are breaking under her taxes, that the children's ribs show plainer with every statue of herself she erects in the new temple. Well, Count Senmut, the architect, the favorite, the lord high everything in Egypt, grows mysteriously richer each time a porch is built or a terrace paved. Captain, they say, I but quote, you understand, they say she grows so arrogant that the gods themselves will soon rise up to strike her down, and Egypt with her, should we permit. Nikonk's brain was spinning. What was this young rogue up to? Talking like a spy one minute, a firebrand the next? But no, of course he was but quoting. Yet the captain found himself responding fiercely to the forbidden words. I, it was true, was all true, and everyone knew it. Count Senmut had a finger in every pot in Egypt. And as for the queen, the usurper, beware, clang the alarm bells, you're walking into a trap. Sheftu was still talking softly, insistently. Should we permit these crimes, they ask? Can we risk the anger of the gods? Is not this woman a peril to all the black land? Nikon grasped blindly at a safe question. Those answer tradition had caught him. The first Tuthmos. He was pharaoh in my youth. He lives with the gods now. He will protect Egypt from their anger. For Hatshepsut's sake? came the mocking whisper. For the sake of the daughter who snatched his throne without waiting for him to die? Captain, he disowned her himself. He chiseled her name off all the monuments. I know not for whose sake. I know nothing, snarled Nikonk. They'll not trick me into speaking treason. I tell you, had Shepsut is pharaoh, so be it. Maybe young Tuthmos is not fit to rule. Aye, that's it. Only a weakling could be held down so long by a woman, like a rabbit in a snare. There was no answer for a moment. When Sheftu spoke again, his voice was grim and quiet, without a trace of mockery. You are mistaken, Captain, he said. Tuthmos is no rabbit. He is a lion, and the snare is not made that will hold a lion forever. Nikonk turned slowly. By the blessed sun, he exclaimed. Which sun are you in? What camp are you in, young man? Who speaks treason now? Sheftu eased back against the gunwale, his face bland and expressionless. Why, no one, my friend, he murmured. We spoke only of snares and rabbits. Suddenly he smiled. It had an astonishing effect, that smile. 
It lighted up his dark, irregular features with a charm that seemed to warm the world. The nervous sweat dried on Nikonk's brow, and his throat relaxed. He was even conscious of a obscure exhilaration, a sense of well-being. He found himself grinning genially. Aye, aye, you're quite right, mate, he agreed. Snares and rabbits, nothing more. Sheftu bowed and took himself off to the other end of the ship, and there was no more conversation that day. But Nikok watched his passenger with feverish interest from that hour on. By the time the silver beetle docked at Memphi, he was convinced the Sheftu was not and never had been a scribe's apprentice. In fact, he strongly suspected that the youth was one of those very fools, or heroes, who had secretly rallied about the king. Furthermore, he realized with a reckless sort of excitement that he, too, would be glad to offer his life to such a cause for the sake of this extraordinary young man, his fettered king, and the Egypt they both loved. Now, two days after docking, the new cargo was stowed and all was ready to sail, but there was still no sign of Sheftu. He had left the vessel as soon as it tied up, having arranged to return with it to Thebes when the time came. Then he vanished into the tangle of mud-brick buildings, twisting streets, hurrying, shouting, sweating humanity that was Memphi. He had not come back. Recklessly, Nikonk paced his scrubbed deck, from gunwale to cabin, from cabin to sweeps, back again to gunwale. Ominous pictures rose in his mind. Sheftu seized by some spy of the queen. Sheftu questioned by torture. Sheftu hanging head downward from the city walls. What a fool I am, thought Nikon desperately. Why do I fret over the young rogue? For all I know, he's reporting me to the queen's men this instant. No... By Amun, when he spoke of the king, he spoke his heart. I'd stake my last copper on it. If I had told him, if I had offered myself and my ship to him and the king, then he would have let me know his plans. What to do if he did not come back? Hi. That I know more, or nothing else at all. What a fool I am. Why doesn't he come? Eastward from the wharfs in another part of the city, a young slave girl of about 17 years sat in a sunny corner between her master's stone rooms and his garden wall. She was bending over a papyrus scroll held carefully in her lap, and her lips moved as she read. Spend the day merrily. Put ungent and fine oil together to thy nostrils. Set singing and music before thy face. Cast all evil behind thee, and bethink thee only of joy. Till comes that day of mooring in the land that loveth silence. Spend the day merrily. Mara! The harsh voice shattered the quiet of the garden. The girl snatched up the papyrus and stuffed it into her sash, half turning away from the grim-faced woman who had appeared in the storeroom door. So there you are, Miss Blue-Eyed Good-For-Nothing. 
the woman said angrily. Idling away your time while the rest of us work like the slaves we are. Up with you. The master's shanties must be starched and pleated. I wish they clothed his corpse, muttered Mara, flashing a venomous look over her shoulder. Ay, ay, so wish we all, retorted the other. But Zash is far from in his tomb, and his stick's livelier than he is. As you'll know if he comes home from his jewel trading and finds you sulking here. Come now, up with you. I come. Go away, Teta. Nay, I'll not go until I see you on your feet, and starting from the pressing rooms. Move now. Teta's... Tetta leaned further out the door and peered suspiciously over Mara's shoulder. What's that you're hiding, you thieving wretch? One of the master's scrolls again. I'll take my oath. Ay, ay. Remember the last time? He all but took the flesh off your shoulders, stupid. Isn't once enough? Put it back. Make haste, or I won't answer for your life. Reading. She grumbled. Turning back to the house as Mara scrambled to her feet and ran in the direction of the room of books. Idle is the mistress herself when there's ironing to be done, and a thrashing is all she'll get for her high and mighty airs. May the sheft things take that Zasha and all his kin, fumed Mara as she ran up the red graveled path. Better not to live at all than to live like this. I swear the dogs in the marketplace have a better life. She pulled open the heavy doors and slipped across the cool clay pavement of the room of books to shove the papyrus to its place among the others on the shelves. For a moment she stood, letting her envious gaze rest on the neat roll after another. The proverbs of Patahotep, the prophecies of Neferahu, the Book of Surgery, The Eloquent Peasant, Balfra's Tale, Forbidden Treasure Houses of Wisdom and Poetry and Ancient Fable, which it was a crime for her to touch. Yet Zasha could read no more of it than could his vain and empty-headed lady, who spent more of her time before a mirror. He could write no more than his name, but must call in a scribe on every occasion. Mara's lip curled. Beast. Slave though she was, she could both read and write, and thanks to a former master. And she spoke Babylonian, as well as her own tongue. But what good did it do her? Zasha was rich, and that was what counted. He was rich, and he was free. She turned to look wistfully about the room, and as she did so, the old memory returned to haunt her. It was all so long ago and vague now that she had never known whether it was real or imagined, but somehow, somewhere, maybe only in a dream, she had known a room like this, like this only finer, high ceilings and luxurious, with rich furnishings and shelves of scrolls. There were times when her conviction was strong that she had once lived a different life. Sometimes, very seldom, now that she had grown older. 
there had even come the fleeting vision of a face, a beautiful, smiling face with blue eyes like her own, and the dim recollection of someone bending over her and laughing. A dismal rumbling from her stomach brought her back to the present. Someone will be bending over me with a stick soon, she thought. I had best be gone from here. Her stomach protested its emptiness once again, making her feel lightheaded and dizzy as she hurried out of the room and across the garden. She clenched her teeth and pulled her sash tighter. One thing she could never remember was a time when she had not been hungry. Well, Tada, the scrolls returned, she remarked as she entered the storeroom. Where are the precious shanties of the wine, the swine herd, that son of a wretched cush, beloved of crocodiles? Asked. Behold them in their usual place, rasped Tetta, pointing. That tongue of yours will flap once too often, reckless one. Be silent and useful for once. Tetta turned back to her task of sealing wine jars and the earthy smell of the clay she was using mingled with that of the hot starch as the two worked for a while in silence. Presently, a new fragrance drifted in through the open door from the direction of the kitchen nearby, the fragrance of roasting waterfowl. Oh, Mara groaned, stopping in the midst of wringing out the linen kilts. Great almond, is there anything at all to eat in this place? Tada tamped down a pottery bung, tied it firmly with linen, capped it with clay, and pressed down Zasha's seal before she answered. Then she half turned, gesturing towards the shelves that lined the walls. Plenty, she said sarcastically. Help yourself. Mara's eyes traveled over the shelves stacked with jars and kegs and sacks of dried fish, all sealed and untouchable, save at the order of the mistress. Then she finished wringing out the shanty, flung it in the basket, and gave another yank to her sash. Someday, she said through her teeth, I'm going to have gold. So much gold that I could eat roasted waterfowl every day. So much that I could buy Sasha and his simpering wife and all his relatives and toss them into the crocodiles. Tada laughed shrilly. Hi, tell me another, stupid. A slave you are and a slave you'll be. And if you don't die before your time from the beatings you get from your imprudence, gold... Ah, gold. Yes, gold, thought Mara, and jewels, and linen so sheer you can see through it, and little alabaster pots like the mistresses to hold the paint for my eyelids, and freedom, freedom. A slave I'll not be all my life. Someday there'll be a chance, and though it costs my neck, I'll take it, snatch it. She hurled the last kilt into the basket and swung the basket to her head. Farewell, Tetta, she muttered, starting for the pressing rooms. Take care you don't faint of emptiness where the mistress can see you. It might offend her. Gold, retorted Tetta, still chuckling under her breath. Hi, gold. 
Mara slammed the door behind her. She crossed the courtyard to the pressing rooms with the smooth, swinging stride made second nature to those who habitually carry burdens on the head. Setting the basket on a stool beside the narrow table, she went to poke up the fire that was to heat the irons. Spend the day merrily, echoed the song of the harper, ironically in her mind. Bethink thee only of joy, till comes that day of mooring in the land that loveth silence. Lo, none that hath gone may come again. Aye, and who knew when that day of mooring would be upon one, swift and final? Here were the hateful, fluting irons, the steaming shanties of that son of crocodiles, Sasha. Outside the air was soft, the blue sky as the eye of heaven. Suddenly Mara flung the poker into the fire with all her strength. She whirled out of the room and across the red graveled path to a dom palm that grew beside the garden wall. Up she scrambled like a squirrel, her bare toes clinging to the rough bark. At the top of the wall, she glanced once over her shoulder towards the the closed storeroom door, then leaped down on the other side. Freedom, brief and costly though it might be, was hers for a little while. She was laughing aloud as she plunged into the nearest alleyway and through the next street in the direction of the marketplace.